Hey everyone, my name is Brad and I'm one of the pastors at CA Church, uh, where we've been walking through a, a series called Inversion at our town center campus. Uh, and in this series, we've been looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the first century church in Philippi, a church uh, in ancient Greece. And it was a church surrounded by a culture that said, uh, you ought to self-promote. In fact, this was the highest ideal, self-promotion, hubris, pride. And so to this church, the Apostle Paul, sitting in a prison, stripped of every title he used to cling to so tightly, is challenging this church in Philippi to be a church of humility, made up of people of humility. Unlike the world who grasped to prestige and political power, he asked this church as followers of the humble Lamb of God to take on the same humility displayed by Jesus. This is what one theologian calls cruciformity, the idea of living out the self-emptying life that Jesus did. And so we see throughout this letter that Paul continues to point back to the example of Jesus in the middle of the book in Philippians chapter 2. He describes Jesus as being in essence God, but not clinging to all the power and the rights that that deserves. Instead, he gave it all up in order to save many, to create the church. And so he's pointed to, to, to the ways he himself has given up on things that, that used to mean everything to him. He's, he's pointed to friends of his, Timothy, Epaphroditus, who have, have given up their own comfort in order to serve others. And last week you heard Pastor Sam talk about Paul's challenge to two ladies in the church who were having a hard time uh, giving up what they felt they deserved. Uh, in today's text, we, we're gonna finish off the series that, and, and we see really the, the secret to taking care of our discontent in, in this text. In reality, Paul's been pointing to this the whole time. The way that we take care of our discontent in life is, uh, the, the cure for discontent is to desire less stuff and more Jesus. And Paul's not just throwing up theology here. He's experienced this. He's, he's had every, every title, everything of value taken from him. And here's the thing, he's never felt more content. Talk about a foreign concept for us today. He writes this in his letter, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. And indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether I'm well fed or whether I'm hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is, is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and I have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. 
What a beautiful way to end a letter. All these Christians surrounding Paul delivering this, delivering this blessing back to the church in Philippi. I want you to answer this question in, in your head. If I only had blank, then I would be blank. If I only had blank, I would be How about when you were younger? What were some of the things that you thought, once I get this, I will be happy, I will be content? Now, depending on how old you are, this could vary from a PS4, a graduation, a master's, the job you wanted, the house you wanted, a COVID-free world. But here's the problem. Most people have the idea that if if they receive or they accomplish what they aimed to accomplish, they will be content. But unfortunately, This just is not the case. We live in a world that can satisfy, we think, every need we have. Yet we're the most unhappy, depressed, anxious group of people. So we are miscalculating somehow. There's something in us that needs recalibrating. In the words of a very wise radio host, wherever you go, there you are. Here's the thing. Our greatest contentment comes not from attaining what our hearts desire, but from reorienting our hearts. We need to recalibrate. When it comes to the personal happiness, fulfillment, the joy found in life, this if I get this then statement, it pervades our daily thinking beyond what we may even realize. Billboards and commercials and social media ads, notifications, alerts, and on and on it goes. And that's just the commercial side of things. Life in the 21st century is training and conditioning you and I to believe that there is only one key that unlocks happiness and contentment. It's a simple key and it opens endless doors. It's called having more. And don't worry, if if whatever you, you bought on Amazon doesn't bring you joy or your vacation didn't do it, there's more stuff to be had and there's more trips to go on. So if that one didn't do it, don't try something new, just try more of it. The philosophers, the ancient philosophers had a name for this. It was called hedonism. Hedonism believes that seeking pleasure as the greatest pursuit and a a denial of those pleasures, that that seeking pleasure is the greatest pursuit and a denial of those pleasures is the greatest evil. And it doesn't have to be sexual. It's it's simply the ongoing treadmill of self-gratification over all other pursuits and concepts of what it means to be content. Men's Men's ultimate purpose for living is to be found in enjoying pleasure and avoiding pain. So it's not a surprise that Paul writes that people will naturally move away uh, from God. In 2 Timothy 3, 2-4, he says people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I love that that's right in the middle there. Listen, kids. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Well, newsflash, guys, it's not working. It's not working for us. I was never a big fan of Dr. Phil, but one question he would always ask when people were making bad choices over and over was, how's that working for you? How is the culture demanding what we want when we want it and keep it coming until we say stop? How is that working for us? It's not working. Following your heart, it's not working. Disney is lying to us. Following my heart does not bring me happiness. In fact, it leaves me frustrated and then blaming myself. I mean, how can I blame the Little Mermaid? She's so innocent. But Paul is trying to unpack a new idea of what it means to be content, and he's displayed it throughout the letter. The first, the the secret to contentment is that it does not rely on circumstance. In verse 11, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance, in, in any situation. 
I mean, how many situations did I find myself in this week that I thought to myself, man, I'm justified to be angry. I'm justified to be sad and anxious and mad. Talk about injustice and pain and loneliness. Paul experienced it. And here Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is full of joy, in fact, throughout this letter. And he's, he's been in need. He's been impoverished. He's been hungry. He's been persecuted. He's been without a home. He's been rejected and is somehow able to say that he is content. And not just now, but in all circumstances. He's made it clear earlier in the letter that that giving everything up that he used to hold on to, that's where he actually found joy and belonging and contentment. Earlier in chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, he said, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, in fact, garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. In other words, world, take it. You have nothing I need. In fact, everything you offer is, a, is a, just a fog that keeps me from actual contentment. It just keeps me running. Contentment does not rely on, on what I can collect or experience. The secret to contentment is not based on circumstance. In fact, He goes on to explain, contentment is found in in giving up of stuff. Verses 12 and 13, as we read, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. How different than the, the world we live in. I mean, we live in a very dis, in a discontented time. Even before COVID, before the political venom of our day, we are a discontented people. Why? Because we are nurtured to be discontent. We are groomed because the capitalism, the secularism that we swim in creates our needs and then kindly proclaims that it provides the solutions. What do I mean by that? You know, 20 years ago, no one was saying, I am really enjoying my lunch, but what would truly make me happy would be if I could take a picture of my sandwich with my phone through a filter, throw a filter on it, and then share it with other people. That's how I would really be able to enjoy this. No one thought that, but then the world, then we created something that helps us do that, and, and, and it was promoted. 20 years ago, no one thought to themselves, what I need is a device in my home that plays music when I tell it to so that I don't have to do this. 20 years ago, no one thought, man, I would be much happier if my packages showed up on my porch five minutes after I ordered them rather than a week later. And you and I are groomed to want stuff now and want the world to aim towards us. And it pulls us out of community, it it turns us inward, and it causes us to rely on what what items and experiences can offer us. And and they've way over-promised. All the promises of modernity and and science and advancement can never deliver what they promise. If we're not careful, we will live and move and and breathe and find our being in in capitalistic zombieism. The, The continued message of our culture is you can purchase Happiness, and so we work and we fight and we we give up on family sometimes to make enough money to buy stuff that nobody needs and doesn't truly satisfy. James K.A. Smith calls this the liturgy of the world, the practices and gospels that tell us that happiness is in consumption and hedonism. Or as Parks and Rex describes it, you find contentment when you treat yourself. 
Hey, the battle's real. We all get this. We all hear it every day. If you have kids, you know, there's a very thin line between seeing something we want and owning it. If we see it and want it, why shouldn't we have it? Paul says contentment is not reliant on circumstance or stuff. It's actually found in two other areas. First, it's found in community, and we see this throughout this letter. It's in gaining good community, proper community, because we become like the community we belong to. We have all experienced times where the group we, we are in community with has had an effect on our language, how we saw the world, politics, and now that community meets us on our computer and on our phones and tells us how we ought to see the world. So not all community is created equal. From verses 14 to 20, we see Paul describe a relationship of mutual self-emptying, what we've called before canonic love, a love that sacrifices its wants for others. The church has been taking on Paul's burdens financially, emotionally, spiritually. They were helping him in prayers financially. He, he describes being just a few cities away in Thessalonica and receiving help from them, receiving help through their mutual friend Epaphroditus. Here it says in, in verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. He's talking about spiritual, uh, a spiritual growth for them. He says in verse 18 that they are like a fragrant offering to God. Well, what's he saying? He's saying that when, when the church gives to each other in active self-sacrificing love, through prayer, concern, in this case, financial help, it's a form of worship. It brings glory to our God and Father, he says in verse 20. There's nothing that displays the heart of Christ more than a community loving in co living in co-concern for each other. It's in this community that, that Paul describes in the church in Philippi, this is the kind of community where God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Well, what needs are these? They can't be the needs we usually think we need, we need which are actually wants. They can't be the same as the needs I think I need. I, I have a long list of things I need. I mean, one is a new iPhone. These are, these are needs that Paul's talking about, that needs that only Christ can supply. These are the, the cries of the heart for belonging and worth. There is a, a wealth and a worth that Jesus wants to offer that satisfies our fundamental needs that our pursuits and promises uh, to satisfy all those things we go after, but they never truly can satisfy. He offers something much deeper and more fundamental than circumstance and that, that circumstance cannot touch. Then what we accomplish or our own control can give us. You get the, the feeling through Paul's writings, especially in the letter to the Philippians, that he believes he gained far more than he ever lost when he, he came to be a Christ follower and was welcomed into God's community because it was a community of the welcomed. It was a community with a common purpose that, that unified them all and placed them all on level ground at the foot of the cross. That's what the church is meant to be, a community that could finally stop running and competing and desiring and failing, a community that the world no longer had a hold on. That's why the church historically has, has always confused a world consumed by possessions and unrelenting pursuits. So Paul's saying, can, you know, Paul points this out throughout many of his letters, that contentment is found, is reached by a, a proper kind of community, a Christ community, not just any community, a community that places Christ at the center. And I love the way he ends off his letter here, this, this encouraging letter, this, this letter about giving up to gain. He gives these final, final words in verses 21 to 23. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. 
The brothers who are with me greet you. These, these brothers that are surrounding me and ministering to me in prison, they greet you. And all the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household, those around me in the palace guard who, who've been reached with the gospel. They say hello to you. Look at how the church is growing. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I love that. So this is not just a theological idea, philosophy. Paul, Paul cannot think of anything more intimate in his blessing and benediction than to pray for the grace of Christ to be with their spirit, our spirit, at the, the deepest level. He writes this in another letter as well. He says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 22, he ends it off by saying, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. At the very core of what drives us to pursue all these things, to, to pursue excess and, and often our, our, to our detriment, is, is an uneasy, unsatisfied soul, unsatisfied spirit. One that has found belonging and identity, not in who Jesus declares us to be, but, but on what products and pursuits tell us we can become if we attain them. Well, that's never ending. In Psalm 42, the, the psalmist prays a prayer, and it's a prayer of pursuit, a pursuit of God. And the loudness of the world is trying to drown the voice of God out. And the, the culture around the psalmist is, is trying to, to tell the psalmist that God is gone. And the effect is a, is a deeper longing to be with God. The only satisfaction that truly exists for what scripture calls a downcast soul. And so throughout the psalm, the poet is remembering the goodness of God. The, the truth that he satisfies what the world cannot. It's a constant revisiting of who God is. Establishing his faith in God and not in a one-off. It's a, a daily revisiting, a, a daily educating, reorienting, and nourishing. It has to be because the world doesn't rest and his promises do not cease. So, so to follow Jesus and have his grace sustain our spirit is a daily practice of prayer and meditation in his words and in his promises and, and in his cross-created cross community. We don't graduate from these practices until Jesus returns. The psalmist in Psalm 47 practices this continued visiting to God for renewing of his soul. It says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for, for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How many times he, he, he says the word soul in here? How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the, the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Notice how he's going back and forth. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Do you ever feel like that? Why, my soul, he says again, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And here's his answer. This is what you need to do. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I love, I always love this, this, this uh, psalm. As the deer pants for living water, so my soul longs after you. I know how the psalmist would answer the question that we started with today. If I only had blank, then I would be 
blank. If I only had this, then I would be content. He would say, if I only had more God, more time with him, more time with his community, that would bring me satisfaction in my soul. That is what I long for. Paul made it very clear that his desire was for more Jesus, that anything that tried to get in the way of that was a waste of his time, and in big and small ways, it was stealing life from him. So what are our pursuits? And what are they promising us? How, how are you and I nurturing a desire for and a love for the only thing that can satisfy us at the level that, that Jesus promised, that Paul experienced, and that, that he and the psalmist invite you and I into? Why, why settle for seeking satisfaction in a system that thrives over your dissatisfaction? That's really how our system works in this world. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers us more than what the promises of the world can ever offer or can ever pull off, purchased at the price that the world could never afford. To have Jesus be with our spirit, as Paul says, is to, is to have the most fundamental part of who we are protected and comforted by the story and the person of Jesus. So what is it that we are looking for? What is it that you are looking for? If, if you have been collecting stuff and experiences to somehow create a version of yourself that brings contentment, you will never be done. That treadmill has no off switch. And this isn't just a challenge for non-Christians. I mean, you and I who call ourselves Christ followers, we're challenged daily to ignore what we have in Jesus. Otherwise, we wouldn't be very good capitalists. How can we be an active part of the Western culture if we're content? But the invitation of the gospel is to have the peace of Christ, the grace of Christ, the joy of Christ dwell in us richly, fully taking us over from the inside by his spirit until it fully animates us to follow and pursue him fully in all we say and all we do. Church, I love you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and may he give you his everlasting peace. God bless you. Thank you.